It's such disturbing video. George Floyd handcuffed, lying on his stomach, with a police officer's knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes as he begs for breath. I can't breathe. But I think the blatant disregard for human life really touched the very human core of all of us and um, profound sadness, anger, fear, and um, just a really deep emotional concern for my community. Thousands of people around the world have gathered to protest the death of George Floyd, including here in Berlin, the German capital, where artists spray-painted this mural. And some of Floyd's last words, I can't breathe, are now being carried and chanted by protesters around the world. I was surprised by the enormity of the response to the murder of George Floyd. Because as a African-American, as a trans-identified woman, I had been seeing these kinds of videos on a pretty daily diet. Andrea, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what your vocations and avocations are and what your connection is to the site of Mr. Floyd's murder, the corner of 38th Street and Chicago Avenue, just south of downtown Minneapolis. My name is Andrea Jenkins. I'm the vice president of the Minneapolis City Council. I'm a poet, a writer, a performance artist. Um, I live one and a half blocks from the intersection of 38th and Chicago, and I've lived here for the past 22 years. Um, I have been actively involved in changing the trajectory of that intersection for two decades. Um, I was just there this past Sunday. Um, there is absolutely a shrine. It's a beautiful shrine. Um, Black Power Fist raised up from the center of the intersection. There is sort of a pop-up vegetable garden that has emerged. There's, there's a meditation booth. The art continues to grow. We hope to turn that memorial into a permanent memorial that honors the, the, the history of this moment and this movement, because this is much more than a moment. It is a movement. You know, the murder of George Floyd was not futile, but it sparked an international revolution to, to really begin to challenge the structural racism, the structural white supremacy, the structural inequities in our society and begin to, to change and shift those. I'm Michael Joyce, host of the Health and All Matters podcast from the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. We'll get back to City Council member Andrea Jenkins later in the podcast. Our school is about four miles from where George Floyd was murdered. So for us, the racial inequalities brought to light by his death landed quite literally close to home. We decided to call this new series, If Not Now, When? 
Racism, a 400-Year Public Health Emergency. This first episode is called Flashpoint. Here's our Dean, John Finnegan. So I'll tell you what I think a public health emergency is. I believe it means that people's lives are so deeply and widely threatened by a disease or a disaster that it demands every level of collective action that you can think of. It's really all hands on deck because people are injured and dying, lots of people. Now, in public health, collective action and prevention at the community level really matters to us, and so does social justice. We're the ones who do see the forest through the trees. You know, by May 25th of this year, there were nearly 21,000 cases of coronavirus in Minnesota. It had been raging since March, and nearly 900 Minnesotans were dead. And we already knew at that time that it was taking a heavier toll on black, indigenous, and other people of color. And then on that same day, police in Minneapolis killed George Floyd. Millions saw it on a phone video. It was as horrific, callous, and as gruesome as it gets. And that was the flashpoint, I believe. A global pandemic that we haven't seen the likes of in a century, colliding with the longest, the deepest, and the most widespread public health disaster of all, racism. All of a sudden, the misery and the anger and the outrage exploded, And this wasn't for the first time, but it put racism once again front and center. And there was a rush to label it as a crisis or an emergency. But what does that really mean for an injustice that has plagued us for centuries? Well, that's what we explore in this first episode of our new series. The focus for the entire series is this. Why is racism a public health issue? And we want to share the stories of the people who are making a difference and we'll explore what lessons we might learn from our complex past and our pivotal present. And what can public health change to drive us toward an awakened future? Public health fundamentally is about creating the conditions for people to be healthy. What public health teaches us is that we cannot be healthy, I cannot be healthy, you cannot be healthy, we cannot be healthy, unless there are conditions around us that allow health to emerge. And those conditions include forces of exclusion, like racism. Dr. Sandro Galea is a physician and dean of the School of Public Health at Boston University. He's written extensively about the social forces, or determinants, of our health. At the time I interviewed Dr. Galea, roughly 130 U.S. states, cities, and counties had declared racism a public health crisis or emergency. I want to be cautious about the use of the word emergency if it implies that this is, has now become an emergency. I think this has been an important issue that is at the heart of public health for decades and centuries. Now, can we afford to ignore it? And I think that's exactly the right question. The, the point is that the forces in the world around us that affect our health are non-ignorable. Let me, let me tell you a metaphor that I use often. The metaphor that I use often is the metaphor of a goldfish in, in, in a bowl. So you have a goldfish in a bowl, and you want your goldfish to be healthy, right? So you tell your goldfish to exercise, to swim around this bowl clockwise and counterclockwise. You tell it to be careful when it eats so it doesn't eat too much, so it doesn't gain weight, right? So you're telling the goldfish to do all sorts of good things to look after itself. And then your goldfish still dies. And then you realize that the reason the goldfish died is because you didn't change its water. So water is the world around us. It is the forces around us that 
without them, without them aligning to promote our health, we will never be healthy. It doesn't matter what we do. And I think racism is just like that. It is in the water. Fundamentally, it is shaping the opportunity structures that generate health, and it is in the water, and it has been in the water for decades and centuries. I've been really trying to wrap my head and my heart around structural racism, and I came up with this quote that I want to bounce off you for critique, and that is, in my mind, I came to think of structural racism as, quote, through policies, procedures, and laws that go back over 400 years in this country, millennia and globally, at the local, state, and federal levels, people of color have been deliberately disadvantaged when it comes to opportunities to related to education, finances, public safety, and healthcare access, and even the most basic human rights of healthy food, shelter, and water. Am I in the ballpark? Am I missing something there? What's your response? No, I think, I think that's a fair definition. I think you are saying that we have created a society which deliberately excludes some. And in this case, we're talking about people of color. And I like the choice of the word deliberate because one of the points that I often make in my writing and in my speaking is that we are choosing to create this kind of world. And I think people often bristle a bit when I say that. They say, well, I'm not choosing that. And my point is we are choosing it if we consent to a society with its public sector and private sector structures that continues to reinforce conditions that exclude some groups from the opportunities that ultimately generates health, that fundamentally exclude people from being health-haves and that create health-haves and health-have-nots. That fundamentally pollute the water of the goldfish? Correct, that fundamentally pollute the water of the goldfish, and we are all the goldfish in the bowl. Since the murder of George Floyd, how many interviews are you averaging a week, more or less? Oh, four or five a day. Wow. How's that compared to, you know, last summer? <laughs> Not many. Uh, you know, 10, 10 a month, maybe. So I'm Dr. Georgius Benjamin. I'm an internist and emergency physician by training and experience. And I am the executive director at the American Public Health Association. And I'm in my 18th year there. I'm an ER doc. And so I think of emergencies as anything that is serious and a dangerous situation. And racism and all of its component parts fills that definition clearly. It hurts people and kills people. So it unfairly undermines the health of the stigmatized population, for sure. And at the end of the day, the whole society loses because you lose the the really healthy output from people who could really contribute to society. So we all lose because of that. So when I talk about racism, I talk about it being um, in, three, in three buckets. First of all, the one that we always talk about with this personally mediated racism, that's you know, someone doesn't like you, someone believes that they are better than you and wants to diminish you. And that's the personally mediated one. That's the, you know, that's the Ku Klux Klan. That's the, the hate group. That's the group that wants to stigmatize another race or group of people because they believe it gives them some advantage. The second one, of course, is structural racism. Uh, and that's because of the society that we've designed. And if one goes back, till you know 1619 when we first 
brought slaves to this country, the, the nation has strived to keep particularly African-Americans um, through policies and procedures in the condition as close to slavery in many ways as uh, we had back in 1619. And then finally, this whole issue of internalized racism, where you take a group that's been stigmatized for so long, they begin to believe the myth about their own inferiority. So this is the person who has been told, you can't be a doctor, you can't be a nurse, you can't be a teacher, and they believe it. And so they don't try to achieve. You know, you, you mentioned myths, and throughout my life, I've run into many people who, when I try to explain to them that the leading causes of death in the Western world, cardiovascular disease, cancer, lung disease, and then two of the more uh, damaging chronic diseases, such as diabetes and hypertension, all of those disproportionately affect people of color. And they, of course, say to me, Dr. Benjamin, well, that's genetics or that's behavior. That has nothing to do with structural racism. What do you say to a person who comes back with something like that? They're wrong. Structural racism is real. So it's, it's the neighborhood. You know, when I was the health commissioner in Washington, D.C., Ward 8 in Washington, D.C. didn't have a grocery store. When they designed the metro system, interestingly enough, the metro doesn't go to Ward 8 either. Not, not in the way it, um, that one would think. It's not easy to get out of Ward 8 and go to, um, go to a grocery store. But what they did have in Ward 8 was uh, lots of corner stores that sold tobacco, they sold alcohol, and they sold high caloric, high fat, low nutritious foods. So when you've you know done two shifts for the day and you're going to go home, you're not going to um, stop off at the local grocery store because there isn't one in your community. I'm wondering, are we sleeping? Are we ignorant? Are we in denial? Why the inaction, or at least the inconsistent action? What do you think? Oh, so at the end of the day, it's all about power, right? It's about um, trying to power, trying to maintain the status quo, and everybody feeling um, who are the powerful that they're somehow going to lose something because people of color gain something. You know, one of the things I've learned in practicing medicine is the first thing you have to do is identify the problem, and so we have to name racism. We have to stop being afraid of the R word. We, we, have to, we have to call it like we see it. We have to say, look, this is what racism is. This is what it looks like. We have to understand what it is. Uh, and then we have to secondly op ask ourselves, how does it operate here? And once we have a sense on that it's here and then how it operates in this particular situation, then we can decide on crafting meaningful solutions and prioritizing. But, you know, you cannot solve a problem until you know you have a problem and everybody accepts that that problem is real. I do believe racism is a public health crisis. Again, Minneapolis City Council member Andrea Jenkins. The number of unarmed black people who have been murdered at the hands of the police nationally, that doesn't happen in other countries in terms of, as it relates to race, uh, the, the rates of diabetes in communities of color is skyrocketing. There is underrepresentation of healthy foods in, in low-income communities. 
you see the asthma rates and, and high blood pressure rates in these communities that are astronomical. Um, the deep and internal stress that racism causes um, these uh, issues that, that are and have been proven to have been directly related to race and racism. And there is data to, to back up those assertions. Okay, we've established it's an emergency, and it's huge. It's over 400 years old in this country, and it's millennia-old racism globally. Here you are, somebody who is part of a city council that looks at policy, um, that looks at procedures. And the question becomes, how, not only how do you dis dismantle it, that's a little bit too big, but where do you start? You have to name what the problem is. And then one of the ways that we have been trying to address it at the city of Minneapolis is we have created what we call a racial equity impact analysis. And what that does is every decision, every dollar that we spend, we want to run those policies through the racial equity impact analysis. So we can learn who benefits from this policy, who is harmed by this policy, and if there is harm, what do we do to shift it to ensure that it is equitable for all of our community? You know, I think people are, are so frustrated with how long this has been going on, how entrenched, how insurmountable, how hopeless it feels that they say, you can make all the declarations you want. You can name the problem. You can topple statues. You can raise awareness. But what can be done that's actionable? What do you say to those people who are frustrated like that? The structural, foundational aspect of American life did not happen overnight. And, and we're not going to be able to completely eradicate it overnight. It's going to take incremental change. And I hate to sound like an incrementalist, but that is the process. And then we all have to be engaged and take responsibility. You know, every organization, every institution has to challenge itself. Um, this, this work is not going to get resolved overnight, and it's not going to get resolved in the vacuum. We all have to play a role in ending systemic racism. Give me your read on what the summer of 2020 felt like to you in Minneapolis. The summer of 2020 felt like a sledgehammer that literally knocked all of the wind out of the, the city of Minneapolis. And it was absolutely um, compounded and complicated by the fact that we we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And it felt like potentially a, a reckoning is on the horizon. And what I hope this becomes, Michael, is this opportunity to really begin to uh, seriously address the inherent racism, to dismantle these systems, these institutions, um, of oppression and and create equity and fairness 
And so that is one area to start. In the summer of 2014, President Barack Obama visited Minneapolis. It was an occasion Andrea Jenkins felt deserved a poem. So she wrote one called Black Day. When I asked her if any poem kept coming to her mind over the tumultuous summer of 2020, she kept coming back to Black Day. Oh, and she said this. I want to end on a hopeful note. And I just want to clarify before I share this poem, that the president of which I speak of in this poem is not our current president. (laughs) Black day. Yesterday was a black day, not as in dark matter or consumer spending Black Friday. Though some may call City Hall a black hole, I wake up every day and go to this black hole. I have to protect my soul. But this was not that day. This was a black day as in black people's issues were front and center. As in a time to make systemic change happen for those disabused by white supremacy. Black days don't occur very often in City Hall, sometimes not at all. But as the president says, it is easy to be cynical, but hope is better. Stay hopeful. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. You can subscribe to this series, Health in All Matters, through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. That really does help us reach more people. We particularly want to reach out to young people and their teachers because we believe you are a very important part of the solution. So check out our discussion questions for high school and college students. You can find them on our website at sph.umn.edu. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other.